0: Our second lesson for this Lord's Day comes from Paul's letter to the church in Rome. We are in chapter 2, and today we will be reading beginning in verse 12 and reading through the end of the chapter. And so if you have your Bibles with you again, I invite you to turn there and follow along as I read. All who sin apart from the law will also perish apart from the law, and all who sin under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not those who hear the law who are righteous in God's sight, but it is those who obey the law who will be declared righteous. Indeed, when Gentiles who do not have the law do by nature things required by the law, they are a law for themselves, even though they do not have the law, since they show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts, their consciences also bearing witness, and their thoughts now accusing, now even defending them. This will take place on the day when God will judge men's secrets through Jesus Christ as my gospel declares. Now you, if you call yourself a Jew, if, if you rely on the law and brag about your relationship to God, if you know his will and approve of what is superior because you are instructed by the law, if you're convinced that you are a guide for the blind, a light for those who are in the dark, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of infants, because you have in the law... The embodiment of knowledge and truth. You then, who teach others, do you not teach yourself? You who preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that people should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who brag about the law, do you dishonor God by breaking the law? As it is written, God's name is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Circumcision has value if you observe the law, but if you break the law, you've become as though you had not been circumcised. If those who are not circumcised keep the law's requirements, will they not be regarded as though they were circumcised? The one who is not circumcised physically and yet obeys the law will condemn you who, even though you have the written code and circumcision, are a lawbreaker. A man is not a Jew if he's only one outwardly, nor is circumcision merely outward and physical. No. A man is a Jew if he is one inwardly. And circumcision is circumcision of the heart by the Spirit, not by the written code. Such a man's praise is not from men, but from God. And herein ends the reading of God's Word to us this day. May all praise and honor and glory be to Him, and to Him alone. Amen. As we come to... uh, Our continuing study in the letter to the Romans, we have of late been examining an important section of this letter to the church, and it is focused here on the judgment of God. After announcing the major truth of the gospel in verses 16 and 17 of chapter 1, that the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes and that in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, Paul has been making the case that all men, Jew and Gentile, need this salvation. And he's been doing this by pointing out the depth of our sin and our depravity. Beginning, first of all, with the most vile and paganistic sinner's Paul argues that they knowingly turn away from the truth about God as revealed in creation to pursue the sin they love and prefer over God. As they persist in this pursuit, their minds fall into deeper and deeper darkness until eventually God gives them over to their depraved thoughts, essentially withdrawing the influence of his gracious love to them. But the vilest of sinners is not the only class of sinner that Paul considers. He then considers a sinner with whom we are probably most familiar, the moralist. The moralist is the one who thanks God that he's not like the awful sinners Paul was just addressing. The moralist is the one who operates under the mistaken notion that humanity is inherently Good That there exists a little bit of good, even in the worst of the worst, but the majority of people are basically good. They may stumble and fall on occasion. They may require a divine helping hand. But with that kind of an assist, they will rise to the level of moral acceptance that will win them a golden ticket into heaven. These moralists he says, are found among Jews and Gentiles alike. So it matters not whether they have the law of God as do the Jews or simply a natural sensitivity to what is right or wrong as do the Gentiles. In either case, their sense of moral superiority simply camouflages their true spiritual condition, which is one of alienation from God. Among these will be those whom Jesus declares, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. And what is the will of the Father in heaven? Well, Jesus specifically answers that question in John chapter 6. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son And believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. So the moralist, whether Jew or Gentile, will fall under God's condemnation on the day of judgment if they refuse to put their faith in Christ Jesus and his atoning work. And when that day arrives, Paul tells us that the judgment that will fall upon these will be entirely just, even though there will be differentiation. Now, what does he mean by that? Well, the matter will hinge on whether they have received the law of God or not. For the Gentile, who has not been privy to the oracles of God as delivered to the descendants of Abraham he will be judged according to the light of general revelation that was available to him. This is what Paul means when he states, for all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. That is, God will not hold the Gentile responsible for failing to obey the law of Moses because the Gentile was oblivious to that revelation of the character of God. The Jew, on the other hand, will be judged according to the law, as Paul says here. All who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. Both will perish, for they have not believed the gospel, but the severity of the eternal judgment will be perfectly just according to the revelation that was afforded them. Now, it is at this point in Paul's argument that there is disagreement among commentators and Bible translators, for it is apparent that right here in the flow of Paul's thought, he decides to add some clarification to the main point that he's making before continuing with that original thought. And where the disagreement arises has to do with where to put some parentheses. The King James Version places the brackets around verses 13, 14, and 15, while the NIV, which we read just a moment ago, places them around only verses 14 and 15. The other translations do not recognize this sidebar at all. They simply allow the verses to run together, and you are left to make sense of it yourself. To me, it probably makes the most sense to place them around verses 13, 14, and 15, because Paul is looking to clarify a question that he has encountered before, a question that originates among the Jews concerning what he has just said, that all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. You see, the Jews believed that they were not going to be judged according to the law, for God's choosing to make them the recipients of his law, like circumcision, was a sign to them that they were highly favored in God's sight. In their minds, the reception of the law translated into salvation. But Paul wants to take time right here in the middle of his thought to disabuse them of that idea by saying that those who simply hear the law but do not obey the law, are not exempt from judgment according to that law. Hearing the law does not relieve one of the responsibility of obedience. The only way the law would exempt a person is if they could obey the law. But we all know that's impossible. It has been tried, and everyone who has tried has failed. By the same token, the Gentiles who were not elected to receive the law of Moses demonstrate whenever they do the things that the law requires that there is something within them that helps to govern their behavior. Paul refers to this as law that is written on their hearts. The Gentiles' obedience to this law, we'll put that in quotes, Shoots holes in the argument of the Jews because it means that having the law of Moses does not work to their favor if they do not live obediently to that law. Having the law of Moses only increases their culpability because they know precisely what God expects and they still fail to live righteously. Think of Jesus' parable concerning the two sons. The father says to the first son, go and work in the vineyard. And the son responds, I will not. But then a while later he goes and he does so. The father says to the second son, you go and work in the vineyard. And he says that he will, but then he does not. And then Jesus asks the question, which of the sons did the will of the father? And the answer is the first. And that's the issue here. If God has given the Jews the law, in essence saying, go and work in the vineyard, and they say that they will do that thing, but they do not do that thing, have they done the will of the Father? But the Gentiles, who do not have the clear presentation of the law, instead they're operating on a faulty internal sense of right and wrong, when they actually do the things that the law requires of the Jew even though they are not being held to that standard, the fact that they do those things is actually damning to the Jews. It does not excuse the Gentiles because they stand condemned if they are outside of Christ, but they're demonstrating that simply having the law given to you by God on Sinai is not salvific in and of itself. And particularly so if you had the clear teaching of God and you ignored it, You said you'd go, but you didn't. Now, returning to the flow of Paul's thought, before he interrupts himself with this sidebar of clarification, if the King James Version is correct in terms of understanding where the parenthetical argument begins and ends, then verse 16 follows verse 12. And then the whole thought reads like this. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law on that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. Now when Paul mentions the secrets of men here, he is indicating that the judgment will not only include sins of omission and commission, the judgment will include every impure thought, every evil intention, every sinful motivation, every aspect of our secret inner life that even we do not fully remember or understand because the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all, ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. There is nothing that will escape the omniscience of Almighty God. But we need to notice here that God's judgment will be through or by Christ Jesus. We read earlier from the Gospel of John where Jesus indicates that the Father has given the task of judging the world to the Son. He says, for the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son. Now, why would this be important? There are many reasons that we could point to, but there may be no greater reason than the fact that the Son of God understands what it is to face and endure temptation. Would you want to be judged by someone who is devoid of all understanding of what it is to be human? Or would you prefer to be measured by someone who has been tempted in every way as we have? The writer to the Hebrews says, We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Now, for those who have come to Christ in true repentance and genuine faith, this is ideal because, as Jesus also says in that same section of John 5, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word... And believes Him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Now why is that the case? Because the Son has paid for their sin. Their sin was laid upon the Son. He endured all the wrath of God on their behalf at Calvary. He stood in their place. And so the day of judgment for them will be Entirely different. But imagine what it will be like for those who have rejected the gospel. Who reject the atoning sacrifice of Christ. To be judged by the one whose excruciating sacrifice was sufficient to cover the sins of the whole world, but was not efficient for them, for their pride convinced them that they were worthy of God's salvation based upon their own merit imagine what it will be like to endure a full spiritual audit of every single moment of every single day of their lives conducted by the resurrected Christ who still bears the marks of his crucifixion. Now this is an important moment for us because Paul has been distinguishing between the ignorance of the Gentiles and the greater revelation afforded to the Jews through the law of Moses and how the judgment will fall upon them differently in terms of severity. To whom much has been given, much will be required. But imagine now the differentiation that will occur at the judgment between those who have been afforded the greatest revelation of all the embodiment of the eternal Son of God, as well as full access to the Word of God written, as well as hearing that gospel conveyed through the proclamation of those who have been called to disseminate it, and then rejected that revelation, and those who have heard the gospel and believed it. You see, living on this side of the resurrection of Christ is a tremendous privilege, but it is also a dangerous place to live. And this is what is wrapped up in Paul's opening declaration at the beginning of chapter 2. You are without excuse, O man. To hear the gospel concerning Jesus Christ, rightly proclaimed and sufficiently explained, and then to reject it is to put oneself in an untenable position on Judgment Day. Which is why you are always urged by me to not let another day pass without surrendering yourself fully to the saving work of Jesus Christ the Lord. Well, it is at this point That Paul turns his full attention to the Jews, whose understanding of what, what Christ has done as the suffering servant may be less than complete. Again, Paul knows all the objections that the Jews have against a full embrace of the gospel that he preaches, of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone in Christ alone. Because the Jews he encountered on his missionary journeys had something of a default position which was genealogical, we are the children of Abraham, and experiential, we've been circumcised, and preferential. We alone have been given the law of Moses. Now, none of these things could be denied. They were true. But so many of the Jews he encountered drew wrong conclusions from these things. They considered these three three things to be inviolate. They considered them to be absolute. God made a covenant with Abraham and with Moses. And they considered that since those covenants had been made with their ancestors, that it spelled an unbreakable bond. Never considering that they had failed to hold up their side of that covenant. And so Paul addresses their covenantal failure on the part of any Jew who is taking confidence in being a circumcised Jew with a degree in Mosaic law. And he challenges their reliance upon these things, as well as their spiritual pride, for they behave as though they can read the mind of God and teach others what God is thinking. And so Paul attacks their argument by pointing out their hypocrisy in failing to keep the law perfectly as God would expect them to do. He asks you then, who teach others, do you not teach yourself? In other words, are you not paying attention to the words that are coming out of your mouth? Because you clearly teach things that you yourself are failing to follow. Your own teaching convicts you. In fact, the disconnect between what you teach and what you do is so great that the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles. You see, the Jews were tasked with being a light under the nations, but their moral failures and behavioral rejections of God's law caused such a mess that it reflected poorly on the Lord to their Gentile neighbors. They could see absolutely no difference between their gods and the God of creation based upon the results they were seeing in their Jewish neighbors. As far as the Gentiles were concerned, the Jews were nothing more than haughty sinners who thought they knew it all. And there is nothing worse than a know-it-all who is oblivious to the fact that he does not know it all. Now this is important for us to understand for this same principle is applicable to the disciples of Christ. We can do damage to the name of Christ when we are vocal about Christ and the gospel but fail to display the reality of a transformed life. If our talk is rude and crude or we carry an air of superiority or we come across as having a false humility or we do not tangibly display the fruit of the Spirit, non-believers will conclude that Christ is an anemic God and Christianity is a farce. Do not think for a moment that God will not discipline undisciplined disciples for God will protect the glory of His name. God says through the prophet Ezekiel, Therefore say to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord God, It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. But it wasn't only upon the law that the Jews relied. They also relied upon their experience of circumcision. This was, as they would argue, the sign of God's covenant with Abraham and with all of his descendants. Now, Paul would not argue the truth of that statement, but he would argue that the recipients of the covenant failed to keep their part of the covenant. Abraham believed And it was counted unto him as righteousness, and then he obeyed God. But can all his descendants claim that they believed God and obeyed? Jewish history is filled with their unbelief and moral failure. The children of Abraham failed to believe God even after he had rescued them from the clutches of Pharaoh. They failed to believe God even after he spoke his law to them. For while Moses was on the mountain receiving that law inscribed in stone, the people were fabricating an idol down in the valley. They failed to believe God as they stood on the border of the promised land and they would not go forward in obedience and God disciplined them for 40 years in the wilderness. And circumcision, Paul says, is of no effect if those who receive it fail to believe God and obey him. A true Jew, he argues, is one who is a Jew from the inside out. It's not about bodily modifications. It's about spiritual transformation. It's no different from the person who wears a wedding band to indicate that they are married, but ignores what that sign means whenever they leave town on a business trip. Fidelity to the marriage vow begins in the heart of the covenant partner. And Paul is arguing that the sign does not equal the substance of the covenant. The sign has worth only as the covenant partner walks in the way of the vow that has been taken. So the Jews can argue all day long that they are circumcised as instructed by God to Abraham, but how does that jive with them acting as though they do not know the God of Abraham? Paul says if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. True circumcision is not something that can be seen, for it is a matter of the Spirit of God doing a work within the human heart. That scripture we just quoted from the prophet Ezekiel goes on to say this. I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations and which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. And I will put my spirit, my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. So, 500 years before Calvary and the resurrection of Christ from the dead and the day of Pentecost, God foretold the solution to the problem of sin. But he did it not primarily for our sake, but for the sake of his name, for the sake of his glory. We become the beneficiaries of this divine intervention, but never forget that God is engaged in our salvation for the sake of his glory. Now Paul is not quite finished with the subject of the judgment of God, but we are. So we will take it up from here next time. But let us pause for just a second to realize that the Judgment Day is not some far-off event because it is as near as our next breath for some. The writer to the Hebrews declares, And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes Judgment So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. You see, no sooner do we die than there is a disposition of our soul. We will not have to wait until the great day of judgment at the end of the age to know what our eternal destiny will be. We will know in the blink of an eye upon our death whether we will spend eternity with the Lord in the place that He has prepared for us or whether we will spend it far from Him. There is but one way to gain the assurance that our eternity will be blessed and that is if we come to Christ in repentance and faith. To not come into judgment, to pass from death to life is to put one's faith in Christ alone as the only way to the Father to reject his offer of salvation is to submit oneself to his judgment. Let that not be the case for any of us. Let me invite you to pray with me briefly.